Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the uh, Rethink Energy uh, weekly podcast. Uh, we've got a full crew today. Uh, myself, Peter White, Harry Morgan, analyst uh, Andrew Swantonar, and Simon Thompson. We, we're post-COP26, and we're starting to write about things other than COP26, <laughs> but but we, we certainly did cover our assessment of uh, how much momentum COP26 gave everyone. I want to leap straight into a story that Harry has done on green ammonia ships. And uh, you talked to about uh, Fortescue. Um, I, I, read, I listened to um, a, uh, a speech by the CEO and founder the other day. Uh, I, I thought it was stunning. Uh, they have a completely different attitude. Yeah, I think that was actually something at COP26 that I really noticed was that um, Fortescue Metals are just leading the hydrogen transition sort of by far at the moment. They're, they're putting in the biggest projects, they're doing sort of making the biggest partnerships, and they seem to have their fingers in a lot of pies. Like while they're obviously a metal sort of production company, they're doing things in in shipping, they're doing things in aviation. So they're, I mean, it's it's a really smart strategy for them because they're making themselves pretty indispensable for these industries, so that when it comes to them actually producing green hydrogen themselves, they'll already have these partnerships that they can then just say, yeah, we'll sell you hydrogen for aviation, yeah, we'll sell you hydrogen for shipping. And yeah, I think it's a very progressive strategy and I think it's very reliant on, I mean, the correct assumption, but the the sort of thing that's being confused in the industry quite the mo- a lot at the moment is that green hydrogen will be, will far outweigh blue hydrogen in the next 10 years. Um, so the announcement this week was that the company will hopefully have its first ammonia-powered ship up and running by the end of next year. So ammonia being a carrier of green hydrogen in this instance, and it'll be doing that with uh, a partner company called MMA Offshore. And then following yeah, this... Am I right in thinking, though, that they actually just burn the ammonia as if it was bunker fuel inside the uh, engine? So, so you, you, it's really a combustion um, system. Yeah, so um, I think that's that's the plan in this instance, or it definitely is the plan in some of the instances of the early ships we expect to see. Um, and I think the jury is slightly out on how the power will be produced from the ammonia. Yeah, it could be burned in a traditional uh, ship engine, uh, or it could be in sort of a fuel cell type situation. And it, yeah, it's, can it's you ha- can you build a fuel cell to deal with ammonia directly, or do you have to turn it into hydrogen again? Uh, no, you can you can you, you can have a fuel cell that runs on uh, liquid ammonia directly, and it is very much in the same way that hydrogen fuel cell works, just with slightly different outputs. I mean, so I'd... I go all the way back to uh, an idea that came out of uh, the Nordics about three years ago, where they um, they had the whole system, ecosystem, all, all, all planned. Um, extra floating um, wind farms, um, generating the energy, um, generating the ammonia uh, on site, you know, by the wind farms, refueling ships as they go past, i.e. without stopping. I think it was something in this piece here, you know, you're, volumetrically, it's not as good as uh, as using diesel so you might need slightly more refueling so the idea being that there might be six or seven refueling hubs around the world and you're never that far from one on, on a major ocean route yeah exactly i think um yeah so i mean if you're looking at the energy density it's far greater than batteries and you've got to look at and bearing in mind when we're moving from sort of normal transport to shipping it goes from looking at how sort of space compact the energy is so that's why obviously lithium ion is really good in, in motorbikes and cars to how uh, dense it is in terms of weight so if you look at lithium ion battery you get around sort of 260 watt hours per kilogram then you get a lot more in hydrogen but obviously because of the space constraints that's that's another issue 
uh, it then gets a lot larger with liquid hydrogen and then a lot larger again with ammonia. So ammonia is over sort of 10 times as energy dense. The, um, um, the Tesla, uh, the, the 4816U battery uh, is planning to intercept something like 600 watts per kilogram. And so are um, the solid state uh, battery designs from people like uh, um, Quantum, Oh, I've forgotten their bloody name. Anyway, the solid state batteries. But that looks about the limit of where we're going in the next 10 years is 260 to about 600. And you're looking at values of about 2000. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and it just in terms of the benefits of ammonia, obviously, compared to the other routes we're looking at in terms of shipping, uh, obviously, there's no emissions, whereas you would with sort of biofuels, methanol. Um, the the industry for ammonia already exists. Um, and obviously There's no issues with NOx in, in, in this because it doesn't uh, happen at high, very high temperature. Um, it, there, there, there potentially are still the issues, but I think there's a lot of things like scrubbers that are already being uh, developed to uh, address that. Um, and obviously, in, in terms of the actual route to decarbonisation, uh, carbon emissions are very much what we will focus on in that in that sense. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's different combinations of when you're using it for combustion, it's how much oxygen you, you kind of uh, put in per, per ratio with fuel and, and the temperature it goes to. So, and, and then you can use, then you can use catalytic um, systems to get rid of what any NOx does in there. So, yeah, I mean, people level NOx at, at hydrogen is a big, big barrier at, at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is definitely the route. I mean, I, you know, I've thought that for a while. The ammonia market seems to um, be on the up. Um, I've thought that for a while, but then again, like you've mentioned, the maritime organisation is not not really throwing its weight around, and there's a few other initiatives in other directions. Yeah, there are definitely other directions, but I think the fact that um, obviously the methanol biofuel route is much more incremental, and I think the companies like Fortescue in sort of the long run with the sort of full decarbonisation approach will just shoot ahead. I mean, with predicting that by, uh, by 2040, 30% of ships will be running on ammonia, and that will be rising to sort of 74% by 2050. So it's going to be a huge industry. Um, and if you're in there early and you're obviously creating these partnership agreements, that's going to be a huge, huge thing if you're actually going to be a producer of hydrogen. Do you know which um, uh, electrolysis um, engines they're using for uh, for to skin? They haven't stated it explicitly. I think it's just they're very, very firm on it being green hydrogen um, and they're trying to do it at scale. So uh, I imagine in terms of environment, environmental impact, it's likely to be an alkaline electrolyzer, but it could be it could definitely be a perm. It definitely could be a solid oxide electrolyzer. They're very much keeping their options open in that regard. Yeah, I mean, Fortescue has a relationship with Plug Power and it has its own joint venture for an electrolyzer factory in Australia. So I think it might well fall uh, into the hands of Plug Power. Uh, yeah, that's definitely within the realms of possibility. Um, I mean, I noticed that, that Plug Power's uh, share price has been lifting again lately. Not that everybody's hasn't, but, it, you know, most a lot of clean energy stocks have been rising. And that was one of them. I, I wondered if that was the relationship that was causing the move. Uh, I don't think anything's been announced yet, but I think it's definitely something that uh, as soon as Fortescue announces a deal with someone, that stock will go through the roof, given the size of the projects they've got in the pipeline. You know, I think throughout all of this, uh, people that are not in the power space, people that are one step removed from the power um, industry, you, most people characterise them as being resistant to change. But I think where we're looking at mining and metals and we're looking at, I think, obviously, the car industry and, and, and the steel industry, we're starting to see people say, no, no, we're happy to embrace change. It's, we're ready. Let's go. Let's turn this into a war that we can win. 
Uh, and I, I think that's they've been mischaracterized as being against climate change. It's only been the power sector that has had the climate deniers in it um, trying to push back. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, so, Andres, we talked to we, we did something on solar. Uh, we looked at uh, the LCOE designs. You, you uh, had a couple of reports, uh, sorry, numbers uh, from NREL and uh, a rival of ours, IHS Market. Um, <laughs> So the price on LCO on solar is coming down still. Well, uh, what, what I was actually it isn't coming down right at this moment, but but all of the reasons it's, it's gone up in the past year are temporary, and I keep on covering all oh, the polysilicon price, the freight price, the silver paste, copper, EVA backsheets, almost anything you can think of like that um, has gone up, and I, I was thinking, well. That's a bit misleading can, if I'm just going to say, oh, it's going up because of these reasons, because they're all temporary and it was dropping before. So what's going to look like when these temporary issues subside? Uh, is it is solar still maybe falling underneath these uh, disruptions? So I, I thought, well, the good thing about the, the latest NREL report for these purposes is that uh, they, they used to, firstly, they were looking at quarter one 2020 through to quarter one 2021. And they were using a benchmark system that explicitly excluded the p- pandemic effects. So this is the, the last and best analysis that you get before uh, all of the pandemic disruption comes in. And they found uh, pretty nice uh, LCU, LCUE declines like we were accustomed to, although it actually wasn't a perfect picture because they actually said that all of the um, the soft costs, this is in the US, of course, um, basically stayed the same or even increased in some cases. And all of the LCOE decline was due to module cost reductions, which meant that you had over 10 percent decline in one year for the utilities. Residential, it was only 3 percent because the soft costs for residential are a much larger proportion. Um, yeah, but, uh, isn't it NREL that's got the the app that they're pushing out to um, uh, abbreviate permitting um, throughout the US? If those numbers are right, I'm looking at the picture now. Yeah, it's called Solar App Plus or something. Right. Yeah. So two thirds of the, or nearly two thirds of the costs are permitting costs. Um, so if they crush those down, if they half those, uh, residential is going to pick up, going to have a dramatic fall in cost and a dramatic increase in uptake. Is that what we're experiencing in America? That's a good question. I haven't I haven't looked at solar app for a while. I heard about it a few times. I assume that it's not uh, I don't think it's a big thing yet. So we still have yes, yeah, so we still have yet to enjoy uh, enjoy that actually happen. Maybe that's part of why SunPower um, is getting rid of its commercial sector and it's going into residential installs exclusively. They said it was more profitable so yeah, I mean, installation labour is very low in there. The balancer system, the inverter is getting lower every year. The module itself is almost irrelevant. Uh, it's mostly soft costs, uh, that market. So you can write a nice big application that's efficient in the cloud and run it all through there. You'll, you'll find it's... Um... Yeah, looking at this general graph, the actual, all of the physical equipment for a residential installation adds up to uh, about 30% maybe of the yeah. total cost. But uh, the rest of that article I did was um, just about the, 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 the different issues that have pushed up solar's costs and how long they'll they'll uh, last. I basically concluded that they'll some of them will will have mostly gone by the middle of 2022, so they're going to last for at least six months in the case of polysilicon, for example. And freight costs, I think people expect to start declining only from the start of 2023. And so, yeah, I'm still not clear on why freight costs have gone up. Is it's just an opportunity? They can get away with charging more because there's been blockages in the system. 
I think it's probably because more there's more trade. Maybe China is exporting more, and the scale of shipping isn't available to to meet more, dem- more demand. So I mean, we more to look into whether or not people are actually building more ships. I, I, yeah, I, I I I saw some stuff saying that they'll they are building more ships, and the first of those will be coming online in 2023. It's a shame that they're building more ships. Let's go full circle in this discussion. Let's hope they're all going to be using ammonia to drive these <laughs> new ships, not um, only bunker fuel. I still find, you know, I think there's my favourite topic is this um, border carbon tax or carbon border tax, because if China remains heavily coal driven in its electricity the manufacturing sector in china will have a high component of carbon and will have to pay import duties uh, on the carbon border tax as those are imposed by europe and they'll get imposed by america this whole thing you know that will reduce the amount of stuff which is shipped from the other side of america of the world and make an opportunity to make stuff more locally on a competitive footing. All of that, however, might turn into a toxic mix which crashes the global economy. <laughs> so I don't want to wish for it too, too hurriedly. Harry, when you were at Car, uh, COP26 last week, what were delegates talking, uh, thinking about carbon capture? It, it seems to, for, for just watching it from afar, it seems to have been a topic that that was that had come way back onto the radar during COP26. Is that so? Um, yeah, I just I wouldn't say that it's come back onto the radar. I'd say it's just in it's still in the discussions and still in these countries' long-term plans, and it's still a technology that they are committed to exploring. I think that's something that I was disappointed about at COP26. If I'm honest, was that con- uh, countries were being quite half-hearted about committing to offshore wind or green hydrogen or this that the other they're sort of keeping their options open they just say we're going to have x amount of renewables by this date which is it's kind of fair enough when you think that they're gonna they don't want to put off investment in solar they don't want to put investment in another technology in sort of in replacement of another but carbon capture definitely was part of the discussion one thing i would say is that i think the discussion is moving quite significantly away from abatement so it's not so much surrounding sort of using carbon capture on an existing gas plant, on a coal plant, it's more looking at it now in terms of direct air capture, which if you can make affordable, might make sense in certain situations. I think there is definitely a movement in opinion that carbon capture within these existing oil and gas industry is simply a way of keeping that oil and gas industry alive and it isn't going to be a sustainable route to net zero emissions. Yeah, when the IPCC saying that once we've got to zero emissions, we've still got to take some carbon out of the air, that kind of is a rod for their own back because it allows the fossil fuel companies to say, oh, well, we'll invest in carbon capture then. And any technology we get, we can use in direct air capture down the road. And um, it, as long as you know, the penance for issuing carbon into the world will be balanced by taking the same amount out somewhere else. And we'll we'll just pay for these direct air capture uh, products if we can't really mitigate the emissions from exhaust fumes. And it just drags them into the debate. I don't think the IPCC ever meant that to be what was... They're simply worried that once we get to zero emissions, we'll still have a volatile climate and we need to reduce the amount of carbon that's in it. But it's, you know, the idea is to get to zero emissions first and then worry about that. Um, and everyone's now trying to turn it into a reason for carrying on burning fossil fuels. 
And Peter, I've been reading about something with carbon capture, something called cyanobacteria. Yeah, I'm not a biologist, uh, I've got okay. to say. Um, it seems to be that um, cyanobacteria is, if you can isolate it and if you can mess with its, um, uh, how it's constructed and make it more efficient, efficient, you can effectively use, you can harness photosynthesis because you, you, you use sort of um, microalgae to uh, effectively, they take some sun and they take some sun and um, they combine it with the carbon dioxide in the air and they create they create plants, they create, uh, you know, physical uh, more plant. And the idea is to use use photosynthesis. Now, as I understand it, and Harry might be uh, might have more information on this. Um, we're not that far down that route. And this group at Oxford just happened to be one of the people awarded one of 23 awards by um, Elon Musk's uh, $100 million that he's put up to to find different ways of doing carbon capture. I mean, most of the, uh, the, the exercise was, I think, a wasted one in that this Oxford team is already won, won winning awards and has been um, for the past few years and is already um, looking to take this into a business proposition, um, but exactly in the wrong way, helping uh, fossil fuel um, plants to... Um, uh, to reduce, uh, to capture the carbon in their exhaust gases, um, and but but the rest of the uh, the experiments that have come up, some of them you know are worthwhile. I mean, I, I, it was great the idea of a fast growing bamboo and then embedding it inside um, building materials and um, using the natural strength of bamboo uh, to obviate the use of cement in lots of building applications. Well, yeah, it's great. That's absolutely marvellous because you know you are effectively growing bamboo, very fast growing uh, plant. You're going to stick it in a building; it's going to stay there for 45 to 100 years. So, and it's strong enough to do that. Well, that that's a good plan, and, and certainly there's nothing against that. And there were some other good plans like that they came across, but the most part, they were the usual. Um, we're going to bubble the exhaust gases through some main mines and and you know we're going to capture what we can and we won't be able to get all of it and this was another such one it's just that it's it's claim to fame was it can do it for a third of the uh, carbon tax that's you know 14 pounds per ton uh, to collect co2 that's quite a claim and and it is really about uh, this group in oxford just uh, going down the science of how you emulate photosynthesis yeah, I think they're 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 smart people who are moving science forward. Um, but if they use it to try and um, keep all the coal plants open in Europe, I think they're they're going in the wrong direction.